0: hi there welcome along to another brand new episode of the high performance podcast to start your day and once again we hear from someone who in the last day has won a medal at the 2020 tokyo olympics get ready for a conversation with cyclist jason Kenny.
1: People confuse us with drivers, but we're not the drivers, we're more like the engine, you know what I mean? And you wouldn't take your engine down to the shops, would you? You'd, you'd take your Ford Fiesta down to the shop and keep your F1 engine for your car, Like you know what I mean? So you put yourself first because you're looking after the thing that will ultimately then hopefully deliver deliver the results and, and you know, our legs are our tools and we have to look after them. How do you measure success then? He's, he's kind of, he's probably measured in how happy you are as opposed to how many medals you've got. Don't obsess with one part of the puzzle, you know, everything matters. And, and always remember what the overall kind of picture
0: is. Jason is unlike anyone we've spoken to, you know. He, As you'll hear, he kind of spends most of his time telling Damon and I that he doesn't have the answer to uh, to one of our questions, normally referring to it as being above his pay grade. Then he proceeds to give us a really interesting insight into his mindset and the reason why he is a winner. And not just a winner, why he is now... Team GB's most decorated Olympian Um, and there's been so much talk hasn't there during these Olympics about whether a silver or a bronze is worth winning and I know it's been stirred up by one person in particular but the conversation is an absolute nonsense because that is just about external validation and we talk so much on this podcast about being process orientated not outcome orientated and if someone has done their very best and given their all and they've won a bronze medal or a silver medal then they are in the top three best people in the world at what they do and I really hate this conversation and I really think it's time to retrain our brains when we consider what success is I think it's brilliant to strive to win but I think it's bad to struggle with not winning. Um, in 1995, psychologists uh, Victoria Medvec and Thomas Gilovich of Cornell University and Scott Mady of the University of Toledo produced analysis of athletes' emotional reactions um, to winning medals at the 1992 Summer Olympics. And interestingly, they found out that speaking to them at the conclusion of their events, those who were awarded the bronze medals were actually happier than those who'd won a silver medal, despite the fact that we'd consider silver to be better And this is all about our own perception of success. And the reason that they believe this happened was because if you win a bronze medal, you know you were close to not winning a medal at all. And so to get a bronze is much better than leaving without any medal at all. Whereas those that won silver just had that thought in their head, I was so close to the gold." And I just think it's so important that we reframe the conversation around winning and we should be nothing but proud of someone like Jason Kenny who went out in the velodrome in the last 48 hours and picked up a brilliant silver medal that was the absolute limit to what he could achieve at that time and he spoke afterwards that in the semi-final he felt that the Team GB sprint cyclists gave their all which meant that in the final they came up just short against the Dutch And I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. And um, I just want to shout out Lotus because not only are they the founding partners of the high performance podcast not only did they work with us to create this olympic special which you've been loving by the way and thanks to the hundreds of thousands of downloads that we're getting every week at the moment but also they provided the bike on which team gb have competed on the track at these olympic games Um, and it's another sign that lotus are at the cutting edge that they truly are high performance and they are so much more than just manufacturers of beautiful cars their knowledge and their passion for sport runs deep and without them we wouldn't be here. So thank you so much to Lotus Cars and if you want to find out more, check out lotuscars.com or at Lotus Cars across social media. Right, let's get straight to it then. Here you go. Another high performance podcast for you. This time with a man who has just won yet another Olympic medal and an Olympic medal of any colour is something to be proud of. Let's hear from cyclist
2: Jason Kenny.
0: Today we are joined on the podcast by an inspirational winner. To be part of the British Cycling success story in recent years is impressive. To be one of the leaders in that team, even more so. Today's guest is a six-time Olympic champion, a triple world champion. By the end of this summer, he could be our most decorated Olympian. So how do you find the focus to win a gold aged just 20? Where does the drive come from to be going back for more 13 years later? What is the true power that marginal gains brings? And what psychological change does maturing and becoming a dad do to your mindset? Relentless, remarkable success defines today's guest. It's a real pleasure to welcome him as part of our Olympic Games series. And it's great to have you with us, Jason Kenny, OBE. Thanks for taking the time. Thank
1: you. It's good to be here.
0: So Jason, we always start every podcast with the same question. What is high performance? I think high performance is
1: basically it, it, it. It's sort of like a single-mindedness. I want to say obsession, but I think that when people get obsessed, it actually hurts performance. It's it's having the focus uh, to do everything to achieve one single goal, and it's very easy. A lot. It sounds obvious. It sounds really easy, but I think it's it's so easy when you're taking so many steps along the way to get distracted. Um, and it's it's always remembering what the ultimate goal is you know so so for an example for us is obviously our goal is to go fast on the track and to do that we train very hard in the gym and it's very easy to get distracted with you know the gym which is very exciting the, the numbers go up you can see you're getting stronger you're getting bigger and that's great um, and it's always remembering and always bringing it back to that single focus and I think that's what high performance is it's that kind of whole it's like your whole life and, and everything your whole kind of mentality kind of can is all towards that one single moment
0: you see that's an interesting answer because a lot of the people that join us on this podcast they always caution against being too outcome focused and actually that enjoying the journey is is a really important part of it so is that not the case for you is being outcome focused actually the answer for you
1: it's not outcome focused it's its purely process focused so you know you, you you can't affect the outcome it might be that you you reach your absolute maximum potential uh, and it isn't good enough to win and you know winning is the outcome but your the process is doing everything you can to give yourself the best opportunity of delivering that that kind of one one thing whatever it is in our
4: case obviously riding very fast for a very short period of time So that's a fascinating answer then, Jason. So can you tell us a little bit more around the distinction between outcome and process, but more importantly for our listeners, how they could apply some of those principles outside of track cycling?
1: Uh, Well, I think, like I say, outcome is the thing that you have no control over ultimately. You know, we want to win a gold medal. We can't actually control that if ultimately someone might beat us and, you know, as every chance they will, because they're trying to do exactly the same thing and and it's very difficult to do. The process is the thing that you do have control over, which is, you know, he's doing all the right things on the journey to put yourself in that position to deliver the best performance possible. So as we talk ahead of Tokyo,
0: are you thinking about a gold medal?
1: No, not at all, no. At this point in time, we're just thinking about basically the team sprint um, and we're thinking about basically how to get the third person, which is me in this instance, across the line as quickly as possible. Um, and, th- and
4: that's all we kind of, we, we think about and that kind of consumes us when, we, when we're training. So can you tell us a bit about how you learnt that mindset then? Because whilst that makes perfect sense, that is something that a lot of people maybe would consider that to be alien. So would you tell us a bit about how you developed that focus on process and performance rather than outcome?
1: Um It's just through where I am really. I mean, I'm really lucky, I think, in this, I owe all my success and and anything I've ever achieved basically to the the fact that I'm I'm in this building here, which is at the National Cycling Centre, and the fact that I I grew up not a million miles away from it. I was picked up by British Cycling at quite a young age, I was thirteen, fourteen when I first joined, and at that point it was all about kind of building experience and just enjoying the sport. And then as we got older and, and we went into what we call juniors, which is kind of seventeen, eighteen, it became more about being competitive. And at that point, you you sort of introduced to this whole system of controlling what you can control, which is obviously the process, um, and and doing everything you can to deliver the best possible performance. And you know, at no point ever in my career has there any been ever pressure to to win. You know, because that's just obviously ridiculous pressure. You, you, there's not what's the point in putting pressure on someone to win because they're going to try and win anyway. You know, what I mean, it's not achieving anything. Whereas all our focus has always been on on ourselves delivering our best performance
0: it's interesting that because it feels jason like where we get a lot of things wrong particularly with young people and this podcast is listened to by the way by lots of coaches lots of teachers as well listen to this that focus on the winning i suppose it's a trick and it's a mistake that we've a trap we fall into where we think it needs to be we have to teach young people that winning is all that matters Where actually we're kind of saying it's something a bit different here aren't we
1: yeah it is absolutely and it's sort of that journey isn't it and it's it's that old kind of cheesy phrase that people say. It's like, yeah, sometimes you win and sometimes you learn, don't you? And and I think it isn't, you know, it isn't about winning, really. Like, sport's not really about winning. That's the outcome, you know, that's the thing that, that will hopefully happen.
0: But do you still need a, a so-called winning mindset?
1: Possibly. I feel like I'm, like, getting out of my depth slowly but surely here. But, yeah, I think you do. Ah, uh, you're not. <laughs> you're too modest. I think we, uh, I think you do, but then I think you've got it, you know. most Lots of people are competitive anyway, Um Naturally, and, and you already have that. Most people have the desire to win. No one really wants to lose, do they? So you have the desire to win anyway. That'll take care of itself, in my experience.
4: So what about the dream stage then, though, Jason? That it must be a dream when you describe being picked up by British cycling at a young age of thirteen, fourteen. How important was that dream of wanting to be on a bike and just loving it?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's sort of in the background, isn't it? Is you know everyone's got these dreams of kind of. It's, it's the thing that that you have when you close your eyes at night of kind of crossing the line first and putting your hands up in the air and, and being being really happy. For me personally that isn't what pushes me on. Like I kind of just enjoy the process, which is probably why I'm quite suited to to kind of doing multiple games, I guess. And, and like I say, suited to this particular building because I enjoy ticking those boxes and doing all those processes. And this is my favourite time now in the last kind of six weeks up to the games where we, we get to kind of go fast and see the fruit of your labour kind of come, come in and, and all the nice bits and pieces come out. And and from this point on, you know, we we, we should be kind of no compromise at every opportunity, really.
0: And is there, a, is there a moment where you go through a mindset shift when we're this close to an Olympics? So where you stop thinking about the long-term and you go, and you start thinking short-term?
1: I don't think, not for me, I think you blend, you naturally sort of blend into this sort of, this moment. You know, we, like, it's it's very strange and I'm sure lots of athletes get it, but we get it here, you know, as particularly, quite quite strongly that, you know, we don't plan for the day after the Olympics. Like, you, no one's got a, a real kind of plan for that week after the Olympics. It's really strange. It's like this big, massive, like, Unknown beyond the Olympics, and there, uh, and it and it sort of blends from this thing in the distance that we're always working towards. So all of, and then you start creeping towards it. Normally, I think normally our World Championships have always been in March and April, and I think normally that's the point where the team starts to kind of really get serious and that summer, running up to the games. Obviously, it's been a bit different this time because we had an extra year bolted on at that point, which changed things. But yeah, so it's that kind of six months period where we naturally sort of fade towards the games and all the compromise gets put to one side and we just kind of focus on on that one moment.
4: Now, I spoke to a couple of um, your fellow cyclists before we sat down and uh, chatted with you today, Jason. So I spoke to uh, Philip Hines and Callum Skinner about you and they paid you a lovely compliment that they said that you were the most grounded athlete that they'd ever known. You are a guy that they felt could step away from cycling and transition into a normal life easier than anybody else that they knew and what really intrigued me about that was a bit about your background that would facilitate you being able to do that would you tell us a little bit more about it um
1: everyone's just people aren't they they're only normal people at the end of the day you know everyone i've just been interviewed by sir chris hoy but he's, he's only a person at the end of the day and um and and yeah that's it really don't really think about it and and you know, it's been an amazing journey, this this kind of sporting one that I've been on, and I've met some amazing people. But the more amazing people you meet, the more you realise that they are just kind of people. I always think people are really disappointed when they meet me because I always think <laughs> you have like an idea of a sportsman in your head, don't you? And you see Chris, and he's he's like a giant of a man, and he's and he's kind of big and muscly and stuff like that, and and. Uh, and yeah, I was. People are really disappointed when they meet me. I know they. I can see it written all over their face.
4: <laughs> <laughs> see, that is the most grounded answer that we've had, which validates what Philip and Callum had said about you. But that to you sounds ordinary, but to us, it's it's an extraordinary answer. So, tell us a bit about your background, because that idea of just seeing people as people must come from like your parents or your upbringing. Would you explain a bit more about that? <laughs>
1: I don't really know, you know, I've always everyone like my upbringing was just like everyone else's really was just normal. And I was never the best at anything, you know, I was always very competitive and I was always fairly fast but didn't really tend to win. I tended to come second knowingly. I spent my whole life coming second at Sports Day and stuff like that. So I guess, you know, I've ne- I've never really been singled out as anyone being overly special at any point until kinda of getting on a bike and, and starting to win races. But even that didn't come straight away, you know, I was a few years in, I was never a phenomenal youth i was just kind of okay and that's it yeah just kind of my family life has just been normal I just kind of one brother parents just normal like everyone else really i had an older brother which is always helpful i think a lot of athletes have older siblings don't they because it drags you on early and you, and you kind of get used to that always chasing which is basically you spend your life doing as an athlete because you're very rarely the best you know
4: so what prompted you to sit on the saddle of a bike and what did that give you when you did do so
1: well, I mean, I've always liked riding my bike, and it was my uncle that actually brought us to the track for the first time. He he just came with his mates and thought we'd enjoy it, me and my brother, so he brought us down. And we did. I just took to it really well, like a fish to water, and then joined a kids' club that was here. Like I say, just really fortunate that I live in the vicinity of a velodrome, really. And yeah, I just love it. Like I mean, I've always just been really competitive. Before we came here, we we played football and tennis and Running and we did, we did athletic club and stuff like that. So I've always enjoyed any sport really. My parents have always been really good at, at kind of taking me along and just kind of letting us do it. And they never pushed us into anything really. We just sort of we did a few athletics things and didn't really like it. And then they took us to tennis and we were rubbish at that. And so we didn't like that either. <laughs> and then we just sort of drifted about. And, and this is the one that kind of stuck really for me. And and it just kind of grew from there.
0: I love those answers because I know you're a dad, so's Damien, so am I. You spend your life looking at your children thinking, oh, what amazing super talent is my child going to have that's <laughs> going to define their life? And then you, you fear that they haven't got one. And I love the fact we're talking to someone who can be the most successful Olympian this country's ever produced. And he's like, well, I floated about a bit. Wasn't very good at this <laughs> or that. Didn't really like it. So this is a good news story for everyone. And what I like about this conversation, Jason, is that when you say, you know, I'm just, just, I'm just an ordinary bloke that likes getting on my bike and cycling. I love the fact that you don't see the extraordinary in what you do that it, it comes kind of like naturally to you You just enjoy the process have you ever considered that, that maybe that is actually a really healthy mindset for you that you don't get too low you don't get too high you don't get too excited about what's on the horizon
1: yeah i think it's definitely helped me i think and again and it's probably a product of, of kind of where i am really i've always been around sort of it's high performance i suppose really for want of be a better word it's like I've, and i've just kind of grown up in this system and i, and I do kind of I, I i am the person i am definitely because i i spent so much time I went the kind of the full course through what was then the kind of the British cycling development programme and um and yeah, I think it's really helped me. I think it's really kinda of taught me, you know, I always think that one of the most important things about being an athlete is like getting the most out of people around you and being kinda of versatile. You know, like it's never perfect. You never get really you know, you don't get we don't get to choose our coach. It's just employed by British cycling and and but we have to work with them and we have to try and get the best out of them. That sort of like set me in really good stead. I think just just sort of in
4: life generally, really, just try like, to try and make the best of work, wherever you are, whatever situation you're in, really. See, I love the answer that you talk about that you have to get the best out of your coach as opposed to seeing it in the other way round, like a lot of coaches would do. So, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, when we were when Steve used to work here, Steve Peters, you know, we we used to get forced. I never wanted to do them, but we used to get forced into doing like little classes with him. Uh, where he he kind of stand at the front with a a marker and a chalk, and a whiteboard and and draw some bits and bobs on the board and as much as I didn't want to go some of it I did actually learn some bits and pieces from him because surprisingly I didn't know everything at eighteen but I, <laughs> I I knew most things but not not everything and one of the things that we did was the model that we worked on at the time was was that you you were the kings and queens of your castle so like as an athlete you're the king of your castle and then you know the the people around. They're there to help you, coach, your nutritionist, you know, everyone is like part of that and part of your team, your own personal team and, and then you, but you're ultimately in charge. It's up to us as much as, you know, we get a programme and they say get on your bike at this time. If I don't do it, it doesn't happen, you know what I mean? So ultimately it does come down to the individual and then it's just sort of getting you that mindset that you've got these, this this team around you and, and, you know, we're really lucky, we've got an amazing team and, and, and it's just kind of tapping into them and getting the best out of them really and, and it's being selfish as well you know everyone always says you're selfish as an athlete and it's sort of true in that sense that you you sort of have to use people for what they can give you and take what you can from them really
0: but isn't that selfishness okay because you might think you're being selfish but the athletes around you are using you to get them further further up the ladder so it's kind of as long as it works for everybody selfishness can at times actually be quite a healthy thing
1: yeah i mean it's not selfishness in the sense of you know we're not not stealing the last bread roll or something it's not like traditional what you think of selfish it's just selfish in the fact that you know you you're looking after the tool of your trade which is ultimately you isn't it and it's really important you know everyone loves a good f1 analogy in this building and i think people confuse us with drivers but we're not the drivers we're more like the engine you know what I mean and you wouldn't take your engine down to the shops would you you'd, you'd take your Ford Fiesta down the shop and keep your F1 engine for your car like you know what I mean so you put yourself first because you're looking after the thing that will ultimately then hopefully deliver deliver the results and and you know our legs are our tools and we have to look after
4: them so Chris Hoy when we sat down with him in the first series of the podcast or Sir Chris Hoy as you referred to him earlier told us that one of the big transitions that that he struggled with when he finished was that when he became a dad, he realised that previous to that, he'd been the number one priority in in his home. And yet, when he became a dad, he got relegated to the least important person. So when you talk about this idea of selfishness and transitions, how do you sort of switch on and off that mindset of putting yourself first when you're in the velodrome, but then putting yourself last when you're in your home life
1: uh, Well For me it's probably A bit easier Because I'm used to Looking after Laura So it's um, I'm like I'm used to not being First in our race anyway So it's <laughs> It's just <laughs> It's just one of those things But no I do Yeah I get what you mean There is And there is a point You know there is a trade off Ultimately when, when, you, when you have little ones Obviously you have to they, they come first You know You have to When they wake up You have to get up Simple as that And when they need you You have to go and Look after them So when we finish training We don't get to put our feet up and sort of recover like we used to and like kind of the other lads on the team can do the younger lads and stuff we have to go and like look after Albert and do whatever he's doing whether it's you know stopping him from throwing himself down the stairs or you know getting up in the middle of the night because he's wet the bed or something and and, you know things like that it's it's just it's like normal life and it's just one of those things that we sort of have to manage and, and we have to accept that we can't always recover as well as you'd like because we can't kind of go home and put our feet up go to bed early lie in things like that and um and so yeah we do have to manage that
4: so give us the best tip then that you've learned in in being able to prioritize home and your professional life
1: it's just not worrying basically no point worrying about it is you know sometimes particularly early on when he was when he was a bit younger and he's waking up in the night we'd be up literally all night you know and then the next day we'll go training and we'll be rubbish. But there's nothing we can do about that. So, you know, it's like we had to be up all night and we still want to go training the next day. and We just have to accept that we are rubbish. So it's just like just we you we have to learn not to worry about it and learn that, you know, you, you just have to kind of roll with it. And and um, and um the job stays the same. You just have to keep doing you, everything you can to put yourself in the best position possible when you're at work and, and not worry about you know, the the disaster that you've had the night before or whatever.
4: And whilst it's a brilliant answer though, Jace, what I'm intrigued about is that as somebody that, that is a worrier, a self-confessed worrier, it's easy to say, don't worry. Tell me some of the tips that you use to stop worrying then.
1: Because I've always been here, I've always been able to rationalise things and just, and like I say, I, I've had to accept for large portions of my career that I've not been the best and I have just learnt not to worry about things and I've learnt not to worry about the fact that I'm not the strongest in the gym I'm not the best at this and I'm not the best at that and just kind of focus on what I can do and focus on myself really
4: right so that's the key you focus on what you can as opposed to what you can't do you don't get caught up in comparisons
1: yeah I suppose so yeah you
4: teased an answer out of me there but yeah I suppose so <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah just like I say focus on delivering the best that you can do ultimately you know it is impossible for you to do any more, isn't it at the end of the day so there's no point in worrying about doing doing more than you're physically capable.
0: And how different is that mindset to the one of the sort of 18, 19-year-old who who burst onto the scene in that team?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've always had that kind of background mindset that I'm not really worried about results and not worried about chasing kind of results. I've always just focused on just getting as fast as physically possible. And I think the main difference between me and kind of the 18-year-old that burst on the scene is, is I caught with disappointment a lot better now. I think, you know, it's very frustrating as a young athlete. It's hard to deal with when you get knocked back, but you know, again, that's just part of your development and, and it's um, it all goes into the bank of, of kind of what makes you
4: stronger ultimately and what makes you a better, more rounded athlete as you go older, I guess. So what was the biggest disappointment that you struggled to cope with then in those early days?
1: Well, when I was uh, in my first year as a senior, so I'd come off the back of a really successful juniors uh, years and i, I was, won three world titles uh, in the year previous and then we, we had our first round of senior World Cups and um, the World Championships that year were in Palmer, And I felt like I'd done enough, to be honest. There was nothing between me and Matt Crampton was the other one who I just happened to live with at the time as well. <laughs> but I felt like I'd, I'd done enough, broadly. I think I'd I think I'd performed at one World Cup, he'd me performed at another. But, you know, I was higher up in the, in the one that had done. And and and, um, and I my argument was I thought they were taking him because it was easier to tell the new guy... You weren't good enough, as opposed to telling someone that's already been to a, a world champion and is slightly more established that you're now not going to one. You know, so I
4: was I was a bit miffed about that. That annoyed me. And as the king, then of your ki- uh, to use that Steve Peters analogy, as as the king, what did you do to make sure that that easy decision wasn't made in future?
1: Well, once the worlds have been and gone, then it was you just have to move forward, don't you? I think athletes, you know, you're always moving forward, and. um and yeah it very quickly became history you know it's not it was, I had a I had a, a mild meltdown about it at the time when selection was made and then uh, I didn't enjoy watching the world champs on the telly but you know like I say I lived with my at the time we didn't fall out or, or anything it's just sport isn't it at the end of the day and then we get back to work and then the next year was we run up to the Olympics and that was the one ultimately that really mattered anyway so you know in hindsight it didn't really matter we were just kind of fretting over ultimately we were going out in the first round either of us we weren't Particularly good at the time, and um, and so it was just kind of one of those things.
0: From the outside, I think Jason, people think that there's there's this amazing dark arts that goes on in British cycling because it's been so successful for such a long, sustained period of time. And I I guess it's really a conversation about culture. So, when you had what you describe as a mild meltdown, I'm really interested to understand how that was dealt with internally. And actually, even the message that you were given when you weren't going to go and they'd chosen your teammate over you how that was how that was delivered to you in a way that was right for you and got the best out of you
1: yeah, I mean you know there's a lot sped about the culture in this place and things like that, but to be honest with you in that instance it was it was delivered very well i think i was I was brought into the the performance director's office Dave's office, Shane was there um and they basically told me I wasn't going to the world's. Which then preceded my mild meltdown. And, and what more could you ask for? Your first year on the programme and you know, you straight in to kind of the, the top the top dog's office and they personally tell you that you're not going to the world. So I think that was quite a good way of doing it to be fair. You know, can't argue with that. And then they all disappeared to the world. So I stayed at home, I was miserable for a few weeks, and then when they got back, Ian was my coach at the time, Ian Dyer and, and basically said, you know, you can't you can't let this affect you moving forward now you've got you know it's a really important summer it was a summer before the olympics so it's really important to kind of get the work in and, and build up for next year um so it's our, it's kind of the last off season really because at the time our season was in the winter so we'd have the, the summer like building up racing through the winter and then obviously the olympics is in the next summer then so you don't actually you want it to get one one off season to carry you through so you know you, you just kind of said. It's really important that we get back to work and and kind of give yourself the best chance. And that was it, really. We just moved on from there and and got my head down and went from it and had a really good season off the back of it. And that was enough to ultimately make the
4: Olympic team and then obviously we went on to win in Beijing. So So you made that comment that there's been a lot of discussion around the culture at British Cycling and it it has been regarded as as almost a gold medal factory. But there was a review that described it um, as a toxic culture uh so I'd be interested in terms of what your experience of that was and 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 how you coped within an environment like that
1: um I, like I say I think for the for the most part particularly early on we weren't at the time we weren't a massively successful team uh we we were su- reasonably successful but we was before we kind of burst on the scene and dominated Olympic games as we have done in the past it was a much smaller organisation i think and and I was lucky there in in the early years, I guess that I had like, Ian in my corner, and and the performance director and the head coach was kind of interested in me. But you know, I I think there has been potentially over the years, you know, might have lost our way a little bit, and and potentially as we've grown as an organisation needed to kind of tidy clean up a bit. I think it's easy when you're quite small and manoeuvrable to give you know a young rider. The attention they need, and as you grow up, as as sorry as a, as a, the program grows, and you've got a hundred riders, obviously you can't do that, and it, and it's just kind of how how you then still make sure that you you're not kind of leaving people behind and and, and stuff like that. So, you know, we obviously went through a difficult time, and we've we've had a lot of change thing, since, and and um, hopefully, you know, we're in a better place because of
4: it now. But if there was anyone listening to this, of oh Jason, that was maybe running a business or. You know, uh, responsible for heading up a culture outside of sport. What sort of signs did you see then that you use that phrase? You maybe lost your way a bit. What were the kind of signs that indicated to you that maybe there was that slight loss of of direction or purpose that you'd felt when you first came in?
1: I think it's just dealing. It was just the size of the place, really. I mean, we still struggle. Now we're in. I'm sat in a humongous office here. And I'm on my own, obviously, because of COVID. But um, it's it's just like such a big place, and it's I think it's so difficult to run a sports team, a high performance center, on such a scale. Because ultimately, you you know, when I first started, everyone was on the same page. Everyone that wore one of these t shirts, you you'd know them. And everyone said hello to each other, and that isn't the case now. There's hundreds of people work here, and it becomes massive. So then you've got the challenge of how do you keep that kind of togetherness over such a massive and that kind of focus over such a massive amount
0: of people and i don't know i ain't got the answer i don't know it's way above my grade. that is so. <laughs> has, uh, has has british cycling not got the answer though because i don't imagine that a, a group as well run as, as the one that you're involved in doesn't put processes in place to make sure they spread the culture among a, a large group of people so are there things that go on that that make you feel connected to everybody
1: Possibly, I don't know. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they try. I mean, it's a bit different now because we sort of. I think we we've sort of created a little little subgroup in the track, and and that's kind of the way we. I guess we've devolved it slightly. Potentially, you could say is, is how we've we've sort of, from our point of view, dealt with it and um, with with the growth. And so we do have our little team now, and is we are quite agile and quite manoeuvrable. bit we we're, we're part of something much much bigger now. Uh, so maybe that's that's the way to go I don't know like I say ultimately this is way above anything I've ever worried no, about
4: <laughs>
0: listen you keep on you keep on telling us it's above your pay grade and you don't have the answer then proceed to give us the answer every time so yeah. that that small group of people that you're involved in was that decided for you did you get together did it just sort of happen by default how have you worked out who gets to be in that little select group
1: well no one's ever spoken to me about it I think it's ultimately it's just our team you know our team we, we all obviously share the same goals um, we have, you know, we have two coaches at the minute and they're really good. They they kind of communicate really well. And we've created a really kind of good little, like, culture in our in our own little bubble, really. So, um, yeah, it's and and to be fair, COVID's probably reinforced that because obviously we are stuck in our bubble and that is our training bubble there. Uh, and so we spend even more time together and we've just kind of ended up with this really, really good kind of positive little group that sort of, like I say, operates within this big beast but but we we still managed to keep that small kind of single mindedness. Uh and again and I think that's been part of our success with the Olympics looking back, you know, when we we take that that Olympic team away from it all and we take we go down to Newport and we we just completely focus on that one goal. And it just kind of brings everyone together, really. And and, and we go from being, you know, a, a small cog in a massive system to all of a sudden being a really efficient sort of winning machine, really, and that's that's kind of really helped us in the past.
3: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
4: So when you describe that, that smaller team then and the healthy culture you described there, like give us some examples of how you give each other feedback or how you communicate to keep people focused on that one objective.
1: Uh, well, I guess our objective is really easy because it's, um, it's pretty obvious is it's to kind of go and is to be as fast as possible, really. Uh, and then with communicating, we, we just kind of... I think we've got away from this mentality. I think traditionally, you know, you, you have a coach who tries to answer every single question and, and should have an answer for everything. But I think we've kind of gone away from that a little bit now. And we have coaches that are quite happy to go, I, I don't really know, you know, but I'll find out. Or maybe you should have such a body. And I think that's, that's created quite a... And efficient it's we're just honest basically it all comes down to honesty you know no one's trying to blag it everyone wants the same thing and, and honestly are doing everything they can to work towards it. i mean we have to because we ain't the best so we i think it's sort of like spirit of the blitz you know you have to kind of you brings you together when you when you're chasing a goal maybe if we we're out in front we'd be a bit more prone to infighting and spatting between ourselves but as it is we absolutely need each other and we totally depend on each other and, and we know that if we want to win anything, every single one of us is going to be at, have to be at the best. You know? So it's in our interest to encourage each
0: other. And have you noticed a change in mindset of you or your teammates around you? Because there's been times where you've clearly been the best and you've clearly gone into big competitions as the ones to beat. Has that changed anything?
1: No, because for most of my career, we, we haven't been the best basically you know i've spent most of my career i've got world's medals i've got loads of them but not many of them i've only got three golds most of them are silvers and bronze so we've always been there or thereabouts but we've, we've never actually been out in front long enough to um turn on each other so uh, we're quite lucky in that sense i suppose if you think about it but you know i mean i'd much rather have loads of gold medals but there you go never mind
0: hey you've done all right mate come on now um what, where I really do want to drill down is in the process when it comes to the actual performance so four years or in this case five years to gear up for an Olympic Games what processes mentally do you go through on the day of the race to make sure that you're ready to perform
1: on the day of the race well you, you basically it's, it's the same nothing changes whether it's the day or six months before oh you got you have minutes you, you know you make the most of every single minute and every single second until the race so when you arrive at the track you know yeah you're not gonna be overwhelmed by the situation because you are not really in it. You're not you're not there yet, you know, you're just sort of ticking the boxes as you go along. So you warm up at this time, you get on the rolls at this time, you put this kit on at that time, you wear these socks, chains you know what I mean? And it's you're always in or oh, for me, I'm always in this like rolling thing of just doing everything I can really and not really worrying too much about what what the ultimate goal is, really. It's just about putting myself in the best shape possible on the start line right?
0: And what about when you get to the start line? How how much do things change then? Again, you know, I tend to just worry about one thing. So
1: for me, in the team sprint now, I'm on the back. And my my, my goal for the whole race is to basically uh, stick to the back of Jack. <laughs> and that's like my one goal, <laughs> is to not get dropped, basically. Uh, so yeah, basically, I just try and stick to the back of him like glue. I'm going to try my best, ultimately, when it comes to it. I'm going to empty the tanks. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to think about that. I just, it would just happen anyway, you know
4: what I mean? Because we want to win, so. So can I ask you, you know, like, in those races where uh, where you're competing against, uh, in situations that you've described where, in one occasion, it was your housemate, but on other occasions, it might be people you've been training with for a long time. I'm interested in the sort of gladiatorial element of that and, how you focus on the process when there is a huge personal element to it
1: yeah i mean i don't get involved in any of the kind of um people trying to psych each other out and rubbish like that i think there's a lot of rubbish ultimately just you know whoever races the best and is the fastest will win and the simple as that really so you just i just kind of focus on again just delivering myself to the line and and i'll have a goal i'll have a target for the race whether that's you know putting him in a certain position putting me in a certain position going at a certain time you know, and, that, and that's why I worry about, and that's what I do, and I just kind of execute. It doesn't matter who I'm racing against; race hard and race flat
4: out, and, and that's it, really. So, has anyone tried to psych you out? And if so, how? They might have done.
1: I don't know if they have. It would have gone completely over my head. I mean, usually I'm, I'm like, I'm a bit kind of head in the cloud. I probably would have forgotten something, so I'm kind of wondering where my gloves have gone because I've lost them or something. So I don't really notice things like that. I just sort of, like I say, I'm, I'm used to wondering. Where my army's gone or something, you know. What I mean, because
0: I've lost it. And are you, yeah. are you the are you the same when it comes to social media and the feedback from you know people who are not in your world of high performance achievement? Um, do you go on social media? Do you look at what people say? Do you care what people think about you or your team or your performances? Or um,
1: well, I mean, I obviously care what people think about me. I don't want to be you know hated by absolutely everyone, but um, I don't i don't really look at it i don't i don't follow it now to be honest (laughs) i mean you only. would you give it any credibility well you're only getting a snapshot aren't you of the people that have bothered getting a keyboard out and typing something on social media so I, i don't know you 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 it potentially gives you some feedback i guess of what people think but like i say you're only getting a snapshot of people i mean i've never sent anyone a message on social media, so I don't. They, no one knows what I think on social media. So you, you know, <laughs> you're not going to get everyone's opinion, are you? You're not going to get some like granny's opinion, sat at home who doesn't know how to work a computer, are you? So it, that's, I don't know. It's just a snapshot of people, isn't it? That are motivated to go, go and give an opinion on the internet, which is, which is fine, I guess. If, if that's what so you want to do. So, who
4: do you listen to then, Jace? Who do I listen to? <laughs>
1: um, well, the people around me. I mean, I have to listen to Laura because she tells me off if I don't. So. Um, Obviously, you know, family, friends and and coaches and people like that, and
4: and that's it. Yeah, just sort of... So can you share with us a bit of feedback you've had from whether it's your wife or your family or somebody that counts that has really made you sit up, pay attention and maybe reconsider what you were doing?
1: Uh, Like I say, in the early days, I think I was guided a lot by my coach, by Ian, you know, who, say, when I I had a hissy fit, kind of helped me refocus and, and got me back on track. And so, yeah, he taught me all the processes um, that I that kind of, I, know I use all the time, really, I guess. So that was probably, he's probably one of the main ones, really, that helped shape my kind of mentality towards sport. And he's very, uh, Ian's very logical, very matter of fact in his delivery of information, which probably, again, has helped with the way that I process things. Because, you know, Ian he'll never, I remember when we used to crash, say, and someone had knocked you off. Ian's response wouldn't be, oh, that was, he shouldn't have knocked you off. His response would be, well, you shouldn't have been there. You know, you shouldn't give someone the opportunity to do that. And so it's that kind of always taking responsibility and always kind of being really matter of fact about it. And and so
4: that's kind of shaped kind of the way I am, you know. So when you chose to come back then for another Olympic cycle, having sort of just, it seemed like you'd be unofficially retired, who did you go to for advice then to... Bounce uh, that commitment Off
1: I didn't really You know I've got Laura at home Obviously And um, And that's it really That's all That's all I ever needed I just sort of Keep my head down And yeah Like I say It was just me and Laura We started training Laura was training anyway She always intended on Coming back after Albie And I just started Joined in Out of boredom really I enjoyed training And um, Came back on the track For a bit of a play and, And enjoyed it And just thought Why not really and then from then on, I was sort of determined to enjoy it. Before, I think I'd done it for so long. And even though I'd taken breaks, I'd always had in the back of my mind, when we come back, I'm going to do this. When I'm... So I'd never really totally switched off. So I think stepping away and never intending on coming back meant that i totally switched off, didn't ever plan on coming back. And it meant that I did you know, other things, went walking with the dogs, went running with the dogs, things like that, and, and just did daft things that we never kind of did when we were always intending on coming back cycling
0: so that was quite valuable then for you wasn't it
1: yeah it was massively it was like a proper reset you know and then when i came back i was rubbish obviously having not done it for a year not really done anything for a year and um and so yeah i was rubbish so it was kind of like starting again which i really enjoyed then because it's like you know you spend your whole career as an elite athlete it's really hard to get better when you've trained for so long you're working so hard to try and find a millimeter of Progression, you know what I mean, and then stepping away completely, it was like being a junior all over again. Every week, I was getting better and getting stronger, and, and it's like oh, this is great, you know what I mean. It's like well, I don't know why I ever stopped. This is this is really easy, and then obviously, the closer you get to to kind of your, your potential, it gets harder to get there. But um, so yeah, I, I did. I, I really enjoyed it. It was a really good. It was kind of like a, a factory reset, if you like. Know.
4: This seems like a consistent theme from your career, Jason. That you've always enjoyed being in the underdog position, being underestimated, or being the guy that's never quite given the tag of a favourite. So how do you cope with it when you are a favourite or where you are expected to deliver?
1: Well, I mean, even if someone thinks that, I never feel it really, you know. And I always think when you're on the start line, it doesn't matter what the race was before or what you've achieved in the past. Anyone can win, you know. It's Anyone in the race can win. It doesn't matter where. Where you've come from or what how you got there ultimately you, you're in the race and, and and anything can happen so i, I never really felt like the favorite in any race against anyone you know I've never taken any race
4: for granted but does being the underdog give you some motivation
1: i don't feel like the underdog <laughs> i just like i just feel even like to me everyone's even you know i don't see myself as being massively underdog against a certain person or and not against another person to me it's just a race against two people and and everyone's even at that point. Anyone can win, and, and that's kind of the way that I've always kind of thought about it, really.
0: And if you uh, if you are around for another Olympic cycle, you're going to be thirty seven ish, aren't you? If there's another Olympic thirty six, yeah, it's only three years. Would you stick around and go again? Do you think?
1: I'll have to see see how we see how it goes this time. See how I feel after it. Like be- before Rio, it was a January before Rio. I decided to quit, and then. I went on to win the world champs in, I think it was April that year, and then obviously went on to win the Olympics, so I ended up having my best year, having already decided I was going to quit in the January for some reason, I don't know why, and then I I just thought, well, I made my mind up, I'll stay with it and, and kind of and quit, so I did, and then just sort of disappeared for a year. And obviously, we got married in Adelaide and just kind of had a year off, basically, sort of a gap year, if you like. And um, but this time, I've I've sort of come back, like, determined to enjoy it and not not kind of ever get to that point, really, where I kind of just I can't stand the sight of it anymore. And um, and so that's kind of where I'm at, really, I'm just sort of enjoying it. I'm not planning anything after the Olympics. I, I might carry on. I know if I don't carry on I might work in the sport I might not I don't know I'm not really planning anything at all I'm just sort of going through the process get to the Olympics hopefully you know deliver a decent performance and hopefully we'll be at the sharp end you know time will tell um and then after that we'll see where we feel you know I mean my knees hurt all the time so I mean I I am definitely not getting younger but I think I can manage them moving forward as long as things don't deteriorate massively
0: it feels like it's quite a a liberating mindset that though, to be so comfortable in what happens next. And, you know, sometimes we speak to sports people, right, on these podcasts. And afterwards, I have a conversation with Damien and we're sort of genuinely worried about how they're going to transition to normal life at the end of it. But I have a conversation with you here and it almost feels like you've you've already found a bit of that freedom. You know, you decide you're going to quit and lo and behold, you go and have one of your best ever seasons, right? I don't think that's a coincidence. You then have time off where... you consider retiring and come back and you fly again i don't think that's a coincidence and i think that having that freedom after this olympics is probably going to be a strength for you when it comes to tokyo
1: yeah i think it definitely helped me having that year definitely i like you say, i think it is difficult when you leave you know ultimately because we you go from being the king of your castles to just being a normal person don't you so you have to sort of fit in to, to life where you know you're not necessarily in charge of everything and and people aren't doing stuff for you and things like that and you know so it's it's sort of that transition isn't it and i think it is difficult
4: so what was the biggest thing you learned in that transition then jace um,
1: that I'm rubbish at running I think was probably the main one because I try to go running with the dogs and stuff and I always just crippled myself so that was a big one that losing weight isn't very easy when you're not training either that was a hard one I just assumed I'd lose a lot of weight because I, I, I feel like I'm quite heavy now but because like, I'm training you know, because it's like muscle and power and all that because I'm not naturally a particularly big guy but I didn't actually lose any weight when I stopped training <laughs> so that worried me a little bit Um, which might have also contributed to me coming back and started training like I say it's just not being necessarily the king of your castle but then so much change for us personally you know we threw our beat into the mix we threw our little lad into the mix and yeah it, we, we, I mean we're really lucky obviously we're in such a fortunate position
4: that you can just take a random year off and uh, and spend it looking after your, your newborn. So given somebody that's that's had such rich life experiences then and, and and such amazing achievements that you've had what kind of messages would you take from all those experiences and want to pass on to albie if there was one message that you would want him to know or to do or to understand differently as he matures what would it be
1: i don't know really i hope he's just i hope he's confident in himself to not necessarily feel like he has to be the best or something you know like i think you get in you get a lot of insecurity with people in sport and and it goes back to what I said right at the beginning about obsession where people become obsessed with stuff and I think that becomes detrimental to performance and I think that comes from sort of a bit of an insecurity and you know and hopefully you'll just be able to sort of relax and find his own way in life and um and do well in it and like you say hopefully he'll find something he's good at because because we watch him like a hawk to see you know he can throw a ball quite well but he can't catch one and stuff like that and uh, and so we're worried about that and <laughs> silly things like that but uh yeah you know hopefully he'll find something that he enjoys and he and he might be good at it and and that's it really it's kind of over to him really whether that's in sport or it's academic or what it doesn't matter you know he's a lot of the guys here from, you uh, know, our and I team are from Cambridge and stuff, and and I to me they're the same as kind of sportsmen. They're just sort of top of the field, you know, and they seem to enjoy life as well, just as much as we do. So it's, uh, yeah, whatever he whatever he gets into, then hopefully you know he'll, he'll excel it and enjoy it.
0: It's a good reminder, actually, of an interview we did with the Arsenal defender Hector Bellerin, and he said something which I think will really resonate with you, particularly when when you talk about being a dad and things. He said he wants us all to be more like a candle that just has that steady flame all the time. He said, we're in this world, when we do well, we value ourselves more because we've done well. And when we do badly, our self-esteem and our own self-worth drops along with the things that we're achieving. And that actually, whether you win a gold medal or whether you come last, it should have no impact on your own self-worth and the same for your for your child you know whether they have this brilliantly successful life in the realms of what society considers to be success it should have no impact should it your self-worth is actually the only measure by which um we should look at at things
1: yeah it is yeah absolutely and we can help each other out with that as well i think you know we we judge each other by ridiculous standards you know where we we're all human at the end of the day and people make mistakes and it's just life, isn't it? You know, we shouldn't. We should give people a break every now and again. It kind of goes back to the social media thing, doesn't it? You know, you should maybe think before you you go barreling into someone. You know, and I know the footballers get a lot of stick, but if you think back, if you'd given me half a million quid a week when I was eighteen, I think I probably would have made a few mistakes as well. So it's like, you know, it's just give people a break and and try and see the best in people. And like you say, how, how do you measure success? then he's he's kind of he's probably measured in how happy you are as opposed to how many medals you've got.
0: Totally right. Um, Look, that's been really interesting. And we've reached the point where we do our quickfire questions. Um, They're the same for every guest. The first one is, what are the three non-negotiable behaviours which are important to you? Give me an example. Uh, Positivity, respect.
1: Oh, yeah. All right. I'll pinch that positivity and respect. So I've got two already.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll just do two, yeah. But isn't there something quite nice, Damien, that you, you know, as we said at the beginning, Jason could become the most successful olympian in british history right yet can't name three non-negotiable behaviors like i know that we build our whole podcast around non-negotiable behaviours. and how important they are but isn't there also a value in the fact that you can get to this level without needing those yeah
4: definitely i think it's i've enjoyed your answer to that i've enjoyed watching you think that one through jason
0: right let's say you go with the next one and go on
4: what advice would you give to a teenage jason just starting out
1: Oh, I think you know. Don't don't be too hard on yourself when it comes to failure, basically. Because well, you gotta get used to it, have not you? <laughs> because you spend a lot of time failing, basically, and it's just it's just fine. That's just fine. That's the way it is. You know, and so and so, you should, and you learn from it and move on, and and uh, and hopefully, you'll be successful when it matters.
0: What is your biggest strength and your greatest weakness?
1: I think my biggest strength is probably working. Like I said before, working with people i've always sort of had a bit of a kind of just to toot my own horn which i don't do very often but i think i've got quite a good like bullshit filter you know what i mean i sort of get you when someone's talking a lot of rubbish i can sort of filter that out and and pick but still pick what you need out of it you know when you're a young athlete starting out everyone's so quick to give you advice and most of it's complete rubbish but it doesn't mean that they won't give you some good advice just because they talk a lot of rubbish so it's just sort of picking out the bits that that are useful to you uh what was the the weakness is it yeah i ain't got any i'm perfect (laughs) <laughs> Modesty. <laughs> <laughs> no my weakness is probably other than my knees i'm not very good socially I'm a bit awkward don't really mix very well in people groups of people stress me out and uh, i think that kind of costs me a bit of what well, it costs me sponsorship first out which cost me money and it costs me but you know it costs me friends don't have many friends not very good at keeping in touch with people <laughs> <laughs> sorry everyone <laughs> who I've never messaged or bang. and yeah so I, th- I think I'm not very good at sort of maybe appreciating people you know like letting them know that I appreciate them it's not that I don't appreciate them but I'm just not very good at sort of expressing that so
4: how important is happiness to you and how would you rate your happiness levels currently
1: I'm very happy at the minute yeah and happiness is everything I think you know and, and this is sort of where I'm at with the post career thing I'm, I'm mulling over what what do you want to do do, do you you know i, I hate driving and we live a fair track from the tracks. So or do i want to work here or do i want to work locally and things like that and, and i think that should be just as much a factor as to who's, how much you're getting paid for your job how much you love it and things like that is a massive factor for me now as i kind of stir into the rest of my life um is making sure that i enjoy myself Really,
0: brilliant and very important and the the final question and then you can have take a big sigh of relief i'm sweating <laughs> <laughs> uh, your one golden rule jason Kenny, for living a high performance life
1: don't become obsessed with one thing yeah there's lots of pieces of the puzzle that have to come together to deliver a performance so many people they get stuck at a level in sport like upset the question that everyone asks us is do you have a really strict diet and it's like no no we don't i had a double cheeseburger last night from the burger place nearby us and and it's like you know it isn't it is important to eat well but it isn't everything to eat well all the time, and I think it's just that kind of don't obsess with one part of the puzzle. You know, everything matters, and and always remember what the
0: overall kind of picture is. Brilliant. Listen, I've really enjoyed that conversation. You know, um, we all see them, don't we? People that barrel around believing that maybe they're uh, what is the right phrase? I suppose someone whose grasp exceeds their reach at times. And I think it's possible they can do it, but it's not a very attractive trait. And you are the absolute antithesis of that. And it's clear you haven't really got much energy for meaningless conversations or forced interactions or unnecessary things. And I suppose in many ways, I'd describe you as an understated overachiever. Um, and it's so refreshing to speak to someone who is not desperate to tell us how great they are. They just allow their achievements on the track to deliver it. And I think um, I think you're probably someone that doesn't hold too much sway anyway by what you've achieved on the track i think the you know the measure of you as a man is probably a, a, a great deal more than that so um thanks for coming on this podcast and prefacing every brilliant answer with the fact you have absolutely no idea at all <laughs> I, i'll come to you for advice anytime <laughs> thank you very much that was uh,
1: very enjoyable
0: damien jake i like the fact that you can be an elite individual with that totally um what is the, you know, I don't want to put a word on his mindset that is anything even approaching, sort of disparaging, because I think actually he's got one of the most solid, rock solid mindsets of anyone that we've spoken with.
4: I think he was just level. I think he was a guy that's just on a level that I don't think he gets too high. I don't think he gets too low. I think he's just able to process that phrase that he used a number of times, process what's happening and see it in purely logical terms.
0: And you know when someone reaches that kind of ultimate strength is when they can be really solid at work or at home and things, but then when they come and speak to us on something like this podcast, they go, oh yeah, I better just give those guys exactly what they want or whatever. And I know he said he hadn't listened to it before and things, and that's fine, but even someone that hasn't listened to it before, if they're not totally solid in themselves halfway through they start thinking I better give these guys something that they're gonna (laughs) whereas actually there was no no desire from him to do that was there what we got was the absolute truth and we got right to the kind of heart of his um flatline kind of approach to life which is what me is that is one of the big big factors for him being a multiple olympic champion
4: yeah, and like I mentioned to him, when I spoke to some of uh, the guys that have competed with him and trained with him for years, that was what they admired about him most, the fact that he didn't get too high or too low. He did, he was able to compartmentalise cycling as part of just what he does. It's not who he is. And I think they really admired that about him. And I think just meeting him in that time, he wasn't trying to impress, he wasn't trying to be rude. It was just, you're asking me a question, here's the answer to it, take it or leave it. Yeah, with with no desire at all to show off. Yeah, it was just, you know, like you say, this is a guy that hopefully this summer is going to be the most decorated British Olympic champion in our history. And yet he's describing it like you or me would describe going down to the shops or going out for a jog. He's describing competing in some of the toughest, most intense sporting arenas you can as just what he does. And you know um, we have lots of
0: business leaders, CEOs, bosses, teachers, um, people that work in the sports world listening to this right. I think often people come to this podcast and they come to it for like for themselves like to either pick up tips for the way they live their lives or to give themselves some inspiration or to make them feel good for the rest of their day right. I think this episode is not about picking up tips for how you can run your business or live your life. The whole point now having done it I think of this interview with him is please be aware that everyone is very different and just because someone is a certain way in how they act and how they talk don't write them off don't think oh well never, they're not going to be a high achiever because they can't sit in a room and speak to sponsors or they can't get high on their own supply or turn it on when they have to turn it on like you can be like him and as successful as him so don't write people off
4: yeah definitely and I think that was what he was saying was almost like the genius of how he was discovered that he wasn't the superstar on his school sports day he wasn't the guy that was being pinpointed as an early age of being an athletic overachiever he was the guy that was coming second the guy that was deciding that he didn't like running and therefore didn't do it he was trying other sports he was sampling different ways of doing it and it was when he he said his uncle took him along and he just sat on a bike and he realized he enjoyed it and he pursued it For that, I think there's something really quite powerful about these late developers or people where their talent isn't obvious, it doesn't shout from the rooftops, that I think echoes the point you're making, Jake, that everybody's talented at one thing. We just have to create an environment for people to discover that.
0: And that's it for today's episode. I just want to say, um, if you don't mind, really quickly... um, So we've been in the top 10 of podcasts in the UK over the last week or so. Not only that, 10%. Of the people listening to our podcast are listening in the states i also want to say a big shout out to everyone in america also everyone in australia i'm getting so many messages at the moment from people in australia and i know that you're struggling in large parts of oz with another lockdown um and so for all those messages from you to me on instagram and other places telling me that the podcast is helping you get through another tricky period please just know that all the way over here on the other side of the globe um where we feel like you know restrictions are being lifted in the uk and we're very lucky to be in that position we're standing alongside you and i'm so sorry that you're going through such a difficult time but i'm also so pleased that so many of you are reaching out and saying the podcast is helping you thanks as well to the many many messages that we get from south africa we're so pleased the pod is having an impact there and that's one of the big takeaways really for me you know for those of you that know i'm a tv host here in the united kingdom um i've spent my life creating content that just sits in this country and every time I go abroad quite understandably and it's quite right really no one knows who on earth I am so it's really interesting to suddenly have people from different countries telling me that they're all getting together talking about the podcast listening to it and it's impacting them so it's a kind of unique experience for me but it's the power of podcasts and I've spoken about it before there are so many mediums out there um but there's nothing that is quite as deep and as meaningful i don't think as as a podcast because nowhere else can give you the time and in a world where everything is about 15 second videos and short-form content to bring you this deep long-form conversation with high achieving individuals i know that it's making a difference and uh for about the first time in my career I actually feel useful so um, thanks to everyone for getting in touch really does mean a lot please do keep pinging on the messages and of course the biggest thing for us is if you can share the podcast on your social media it just reaches people and that way we can have even more of an impact Um, as always it wouldn't be half the podcast it is without the brilliant Damien Hughes. You can find him at Liquid Thinker on Instagram. Thanks to the whole team, to Hannah, to Will, to Finn, Ryan at Rethink Audio and everyone else involved in the podcast. Just a quick reminder, if you want to get even more involved with us, then you can join the High Performance Circle. Just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, join our members club. It's absolutely free, loads more content, so get involved there as well. But whatever you're doing, wherever you are, whatever is happening in your world, I'm sending you all the love and best wishes I've got, and I'll speak to you soon.
3: Planning for your next trip?